Welcome to the Power Podcast. I'm your host, Malia Warner. Today is episode 87, Politics and Abortion. Hello, my friend, and welcome. I want to genuinely say thank you for being here and listening. The fact that you have pressed play and that you are here shows me that you have come with an amount of openness or curiosity, both of which are actually really good things to bring into any difficult discussion. If you hear shakiness in my voice, if you hear cracking in my voice, I cannot help it. This is the most challenging podcast episode I have ever taken on, and no amount of water drinking or vocal warm-ups or jumping jacks are working to take the shake out of my voice. I am not going to be able to fake my way through this. I have so, so, so many times walked away from recording this. I've been working on it for two weeks. I have decided to just go with the other topic that I had planned, which was far less controversial. In fact, it was non-controversial, a great self-help principle. And every time I tried to record that one, I couldn't. And I have been sick about it for a week, for two weeks, trying to work through my thought process and justify not talking about this and not going down this road and not being controversial. And that doesn't feel right to me. That doesn't feel honest and it doesn't feel authentic. After much wrestling and scripting and much editing, I have finally come to terms with the fact that I am not going to get the wording right about this. I am probably going to say things very clumsily. And in the end, that is okay. In fact, that's even better because I am not here to prove a point. I am not here to convince anyone. I am not here to prove my perspective or my beliefs right. I absolutely believe what I podcasted in episode 86, that when it comes to complex social issues, we do not have to look for the right side and the wrong side. I absolutely believe that there is right and right on seemingly opposing ends of the spectrum. And if you missed that episode, go back and listen to episode 86. It helps enormously as we are bombarded with so much political negativity and character bashing and one side just eating up the other side and vice versa. It helps us to maintain our humanity and our compassion and our empathy to remember that there can be right and right on both sides of issues. And I think that for any of us to be able to get through the next several weeks and the election and the results of the election, whatever they may be, and maintain our humanity and our compassion and faith in each other will be an enormous accomplishment. And that's my goal. That's my goal for myself is I want to come through on November 6th or 7th or however long it takes for the results to come in with my faith in humanity still intact. With those goals and that intention stated, this episode is me sharing the reasons why I do not vote based on the issue of abortion. Whether the presidential candidate claims to be pro-life or pro-choice is not the ultimate deciding factor for me. 
And I'm going to restate right here that I do not believe that I am right in this and that you are wrong if abortion is your final deciding factor. I respect you. I respect your thinking process and the way that you come to those conclusions. And also, again, I thank you for being here today and being open to what my curious reasoning might be about these issues. I am speaking about this today because I have had multiple friends, people that I very much respect, value our relationship, people that I am related to, post questions and ask on social media, how could anyone be a Christian and not vote pro-life? And I think it is a very valid question. And I believe there are other people out there like myself who do believe in Jesus and pray and have a testimony and believe in the scriptures and the prophets and don't feel comfortable voting for the current pro-life candidate. And so when I hear the question, well, how can you be Christian and not vote pro-life? I think it's a good question. Someone really needs to address that question. Someone who has a platform, someone who has a voice, someone who's in that situation and has some ideas about it should really speak to that. And then I realize, well, that someone could be me. And so that is where I am coming from today. It is not out of animosity. It is not out of contradiction. It is simply me sharing my thought processes, my decision-making process, and how I balance my pro-life beliefs with my political voting. So with all of that set up, with all of that groundwork laid, hopefully we're on the same page. We know where we're each coming from. And again, I thank you. I think it's really cool that you are here of all of the things that you could be listening to or doing for the next 20 or 30 minutes. I think it's amazing that you're open to a conversation that could be uncomfortable, that could be things that you don't agree with. And I just, I don't know why you're here or why you're listening or what brought you here, but I think it's awesome. And I think it says a lot about you and what you want for our country and that we can all benefit and progress by listening and understanding various perspectives, different points of view. That's what it's all about, right? The power perspective. So let's dive in. Again, thank you for being here as I share with you some of my political perspectives and why abortion is not the deciding factor for me when I vote for the presidential candidate. The very first reason, and this would be enough of a reason for me to not vote based on the abortion issue, is how abortion has been politicized over the last 40 years. So let me just explain what I mean by that. 40 years ago, the 1970s, abortion was not a party issue. Today, it is assumed that if you vote Democrat, you are pro-abortion, and that if you vote Republican, you are pro-life. But historically, that was not always the case. You would find pro-lifers and pro-choicers distributed among both the Democratic and the Republican Party. In fact, prior to and during the 1970s, the dominant group that were voting pro-life were Catholic, and Catholics were dominantly Democrat. Now remember, we can't talk all or nothing here. There were obviously pro-choice Catholics, and there were Catholics who were also Republican. So definitely not all or nothing, just dominant majority speaking. So in 1979, along comes a political strategist named Paul Weyrich. 
and he's thinking and strategizing, how do I get my party, the Republican Party, to win elections? At this time in the late 1970s, evangelicals made up 29% of the population of the United States of America, and most of them did not vote. Largely, evangelicals viewed politics as corrupt, evil, or at least irrelevant. And he sees an opportunity. And if you think about the evangelical population at that time, who were not politically affiliated and thus their political loyalties were up for grabs, if you could light a fire under the evangelicals, this segment of society, and give them a reason to get out to the polls and vote, and especially if they voted because it became a religious obligation, then you could have enormous sway in the outcome of elections. And what better way to highly motivate a segment of the population who had previously been apathetic to politics than to target in on an issue that would be highly moral, highly religious, and highly emotionally charged. It makes sense why this political strategy was so effective, because one of the four core beliefs of evangelicals is evangelizing. And you had these very charismatic evangelizers with radio shows such as Rex Rex Hubbard and James Robinson and Billy Graham. And then those radio shows turned into televangelism. And you had these televised stars. You had Jim Baker and Tammy Faye Baker. And in 1979, you had Jerry Falwell Sr. form the Political Action Committee and called it Moral Majority. So here enters the political scene, California Governor Ronald Reagan, who had in California signed one of the most liberal abortion laws of any of the states, because even though the Supreme Court had voted that illegalizing abortion was unconstitutional, it was largely up to the states to determine how abortion would be regulated, which is still the case today. So Ronald Reagan becomes the Republican nominee for president, And he's the first political candidate to really address this evangelical population, which is today known as the religious right, this moral majority. And when in 1986, a deeply divided Supreme Court voted five to four to uphold Roe versus Wade, the evangelicals, this moral majority, made it their mission to continually vote for the Republican candidate in order to get one more judge, one more judge on the Supreme Court, in the hopes of reversing Roe v. Wade. And the reason I'm bringing up these political situations from the 1980s is that we're hearing about them right now with this election again. The potential for the Supreme Court to now have another conservative judge and perhaps the overturn of the Roe v. Wade And so abortion has become a huge voting issue for the 2020 presidential election. This political strategy for the Republican Party to court the religious right has been enormously effective. In 2016, the majority of evangelical vote went toward Trump, the Republican candidate. And recent polls have shown that 90% of evangelicals support Trump's re-election. This political strategy has gone even further further to now have the effect that the Republican Party is the pro-life party and the Democratic Party is the pro-choice party. 
which isn't necessarily true for all members of each of those parties. Which is why if I choose to vote Democratic, people will jump to conclusions and label and lump me under this mass umbrella as anti-life baby slayer, which is not true. So one of the reasons why the issue of abortion is not a final voting factor for me, that was a mouthful, is because abortion has become a puppet string issue. It is the issue that the candidates, the parties, and the political strategists know how to manipulate in order to control voters. This is by controlling voter emotion and also voter morality. If you really are a loving disciple of Jesus Christ, then there is no way that you are going to be able to stand for a baby with a beating heart being ripped out of its mother's womb and all of this really horrific graphic imagery and political rhetoric that gets used as elections approach. And it's very effective. It makes me feel like there's no way I can be a God-fearing person and not vote for this candidate who is pro-life, who promises to end this abhorrent practice. Have you ever noticed how the issue of abortion comes up every fourth year in an election year? And I even noticed this growing up before I was a political science major. I noticed this in elections that During the election year, abortion was a huge topic, and then I noticed it kind of went away the other three years. And it's happening right now, and it happened in 2016. A lot of attention and emotion and talk about abortion, and then after the election, it goes away. We largely go back to business as usual. Most of us go back to church. We go back to work. We go back to trying to find something decent to watch on TV. And do we do anything to change the abortion issue or to support or improve education or resources or adoption availability? I know there are those of you who do, who are very active. And bravo, because most of us, me included, haven't done anything between elections to act on the strong emotions that we have regarding abortion every fourth year between the months of July and November. By making abortion such a heated emotional issue, the political candidate has a lot of power to manipulate the emotions and actions of voters. So for me, when I'm weighing my options before casting my vote, I think, okay, what is the bigger impact of this political manipulation? If abortion is the deciding factor for every religious person, then in theory, any candidate is able to control the religious vote merely by professing to be pro-life. Whether the candidate truly has a personal pro-life conviction or not, that candidate is able to manipulate the religious vote by professing to be pro-life. This gives undue power to the candidate to sneak any other policy under the guise of being pro-life. And for me, this is scary. It's terrifying, actually. I believe as voters, we need to be very attentive that our spidey senses need to be on high alert to what tactics the national party committees and the candidates are trying to sneak past us. It's a perfect example of the wolf in sheep's clothing. 
if the sheep's clothing is the guise of pro-life and 100% of the religious voters are voting for the sheep's clothing because religiously we are obligated, we are morally obligated to vote pro-life and to thus vote the candidate who professes pro-life, then any kind of wolf could be hidden under that sheep's wool. Does that make sense? It is important for me, and I have one vote which feels very insignificant, but we all just have one vote. But for me, my vote says, I am not okay with a political strategist deciding to make abortion a Republican issue and thus giving one party such undue power over the votes of religious people. I am far more in favor of having active religious political voices in both parties. I believe it's essential. And again, here's my disclaimer that I am not saying that I am right. I do not believe that anyone else is wrong. I don't believe that people who vote based on abortion are wrong. I don't believe that. I respect those decisions and I'm glad that there are people who are politically passionate and politically active. And I am simply sharing my perspective that I am leery of how one political party came to claim monopoly on the pro-life issue and how I want to be watchful and savvy that a political candidate does not use my religious beliefs to manipulate my vote for a personal agenda that I may not agree with. What I am most dissatisfied with in government right now is the partisan politics, the lack of cooperation, mutual respect, compromise. Right now, Congress is trying to pass a COVID relief package, and it won't pass. They're trying to pass a budget to get the government functioning through the end of the year, and it won't pass because anything that is labeled Republican, the Democrats won't vote for, and anything labeled Democrat, the Republicans won't vote for. And you know what? A party name is largely a label. Parties have evolved over time. What they stand for has evolved over time. And no person in this country 100% fits into one party or the other because there's no party constitution exactly written about what the party stands for. It's flux, ever-changing. It ebbs and flows with social movements. What parties stand for. And as evidenced today, political strategists can end up monopolizing what parties stand for and thus controlling voters and which party they can align themselves with. As a little exercise to try to keep myself free from party biases and party politics, I like to ask myself, what if my candidate swapped party? What if Trump had run on a Democratic ticket? would voters still vote for him? If Biden were running as a Republican, would I vote for him? If Obama had run as a black Republican, would voters have voted for him? And I remind myself, if my candidate were to swap party and my opinion of them changes, then I am being a puppet to party politics. I am being manipulated by the Democratic National Committee or the Republican National Committee rather than being dictated by my own conscience. I think this is important because if I want my Congress, my government to stop being partisan, 
then I need to stop voting partisan. I need to stop condemning or vilifying anyone who views things differently than I do. What if, as voters, we stopped voting party? And I believe in the two-party system. I don't love it. I think it's the best thing that we have. It works largely for us. But what if, instead of voting against a Republican who crossed party lines to vote Democratic on an issue, what if we voted in favor of them? What if we vote in favor of the senators, of the congressmen and women who cross party lines to vote and get things done for the country? What if we are more open and less divisive with each other, with our family members, with those in our neighborhoods? What if we are more open to have safe political conversations where we discuss a myriad of beliefs without vilifying or condemning those who may fall on an opposite side of the issue. And I really think as we have more open conversations that we will understand more where people are coming from and see things about issues that we may not have considered before. I have another reason scripted out why abortion is not a political voting issue for me, and it's actually a reason far more personal to me But this podcast is full. I feel like our brains are full. My brain is full. Maybe I will record reason number two as podcast episode for next week. And maybe I won't feel like it was necessary for me to share that. I'm just going to kind of follow my gut instinct this week and see where that leads me. To finish up today, I want to recommend a book and a podcast that I just listened to last night. If any of you are familiar with the 3 and 30 podcast by Rachel Nilsson, she had um, the girls from Pantsuit Politics on a couple of weeks ago, Sarah and Beth, discussing how to have grace-filled political conversations with family and friends. And in 2018, they wrote a book, has a great title. Its title is, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening a guide to grace-filled political conversations. And they had fantastic tips about how to come into political conversations and to lay aside our, they call it a jersey. They say, take off your jersey because we're trained with sports and in sports, one side has to win and one side has to lose. But that's not true in our social situations. Take off the jersey and let's approach conversations in a way to find out how are we both right? How are we, you know, right on a, on opposing ends of issues? And how can we meet as many diverse needs as exist in this country working together? And they talk about how to come into conversations, letting go of the need to be right, letting go of the need to prove my viewpoint, my perspective as right, and coming into the conversation with openness and with curiosity. Just be curious. Be curious what someone else thinks and what someone else's perspective is and kind of liberate ourselves from the need to judge or the need to vindicate our own beliefs and, you know, this human instinct that we have to be right. And I really think that they had a lot of fabulous ideas. All right. My voice is going even more than it has been. Thank you so much for spending this time with me today. 
let's pat ourselves on the back. We did it. Congratulations to us. We had a discussion about a tricky political issue and we're all still alive and breathing, right? Are you breathing? You're alive? You're good? All right, we did it. I think that that is a step to be proud of. I'm Malia Warner. Thank you for listening to The Power Podcast. As always, I wish you a fabulous week. Be safe, stay healthy, and I will meet you back here for the next episode of The Power Podcast. Bye-bye, my friend.